Welcome to Professor Latinx Podcast. And today, on this sunny day here in Columbus, Ohio, I have Sean Gines, co-editor of Unstable Masks, Whiteness, and American Superhero Comics. Sean is also PhD candidate in 20th Century American Literature and Culture at Michigan State University. Sean, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Frederick. Sean, this book uh, that you co-edited with Martin Lund, um, who unfortunately can't be with us at this moment. I, I, I know he's across the pond, and the hour differences were a little bit difficult. Um, but you came up with this idea. Why? Why did you come up? You and Martin come up with this idea, and of course, dedicate a bunch of time and energy to pull it together, this edited volume that really kind of interrogates whiteness. Yeah, kind of a a providential story because it sort of came out of nowhere for both of us. Um, Martin and I had been friends online for a while, um, and I was spending a few weeks in New York one summer, um, I think back in 2016. So I sort of said, hey, let's meet up. We met at a coffee house and I think after a few minutes of conversation sort of became best buddies and we're like, we had a book together. Um, and we kind of both immediately came to the idea of talking about what we had each seen as an important lacuna in comic studies, especially around superheroes and both of us mostly read superhero comic, which is, you know, there's a lot of great work going on on race um, and ethnicity and and religion in comics, but they tended not to be looking at what we saw as the problem that was creating the need to look at race, which is whiteness. Uh, and so we sort of spent a few months, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what would the of this be? And eventually, you know, got a great group of contributors. Um, you, the, the introduction, or not the introduction, but the preface yourself, and we got uh, Noah Berlatsky, who's a somewhat well-known uh, media commentator to write the, um, the outgoing piece. And, uh, you know, hopefully that, that makes history. So, Martin, for our, our listeners, what is the takeaway from Unstable Masks? Um, so the takeaway really is that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done um, with race and whiteness in comic studies, and, and not just with, with superheroes. But, you know, the reason we started with superheroes is because One, they're such a a driver of the mainstream industry and obviously have moved into films and television and games and become, you know, essentially next to Star Wars, probably the most lucrative thing there is in media. Um, And so what we really wanted to do was highlight that um, whiteness is sort of the powerhouse behind the way that race is operating in comic studies, which, you know, it's not a particularly... Uh, novel comment to make. Um, a lot of the scholars that we cite in our introduction, which frames everything, you know, these are folks who are talking about whiteness um, and race in comics. But what we wanted to do was put the explicit emphasis on bringing the sort of multi-disciplinary um, interest in whiteness studies to comics and sort of start a conversation that ideally can continue from here. Sean, whiteness uh, for our listeners, especially the ones that are excited about comics, have been reading comics since, you know, the day we were born, pretty much. Um, 
you know, in lots of ways, I think of, you know, kind of superheroes as materialized, you know, embodiments of our kind of wish fulfillment fantasy. And what does that mean when the superheroes are predominantly white and made, created by white sort of men, right? What is the fantasy of white power in and through American superheroes mean in terms of dreaming, daydreaming, and materializing those dreams? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think that it's an important question to ask because, you know, a lot of people end up reading comics or starting with comics because superheroes are this sort of exciting escape. Um, that's something Ramsey Fawad deals with in his um, book, The New Mutants, but sort of going in a different direction about queer fantasy and gendered and embodied, embodied fantasy around gender. For us, I think um, whiteness really, we don't want to necessarily say that, you know, liking a white superhero or seeing yourself, you know, as a white child, you know, as, say, Superman, who's basically always white, um, is a problem. But what we do want to say is that this idea that the superhero is the figure of justice and strength, um, the savior of the, the community, even of humanity sometimes, that this reinforces the larger powers of structure into which both white people and people of color are born. Um, you know, so you're noting that obviously, um, you know, if a, a child of color is reading comics, it might be difficult for them to see themselves in Superman. It might give them the idea that, you know, if there are no superheroes of color, then they aren't to be represented in the people who can save society. So that classic, you know, you can be anything you want to when you grow up doesn't really mean much to a child or a Latinx child who's, um, who's trying to see their role models. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that's great. So, okay, you and Martin talk in your introduction um, about a kind of uh, at once sort of simultaneous assimilationist and separationist impulse in comics. What does that mean exactly for a kind of lay person? Um, are we, I, I forget, are we talking about comics there or are we talking about whiteness? Um, You're talking about white, whiteness, but yeah, I, I was thinking... Um, you know, what does that mean? Like, um, I, I don't know. We could take, you know, um, the Captain America figure, maybe, mm-hmm. um, or any any comic superhero figure and uh, Batman or, you know. Um, yeah. And, you know, what does it mean that somehow whiteness in and through comics at once kind of pushes toward assimilation of otherness and at the same time creates the very category of otherness. Yeah. um, I mean, when you look at the history of whiteness, and in fact, historians have been doing, historians and sociologists together have been doing a lot of the brunt of what we call whiteness studies. Um, And and one of the sort of key type of study that they do is to look at how did X group come to be considered white or not white, which is really a question of, how did X group become empowered or disempowered based on what, you know, sometimes arbitrary factors um, led them to be considered white or colored or raced or, you know, ethnicized. Um, So when we talk about assimilationist, you know, what we mean there basically is that 
um, both superheroes and whiteness play a role in establishing power. Um, if, for example, in the early 20th century, certain Europeans who we might consider today are, you know, quote unquote white, for example, Italians, Slavs, um, and Jews, um, by the middle 20th century, these people were considered white, but several decades before, they were considered people of color, they were ethnics, etc. Um, and the term for that in the scholarship is ethnic whites, but what we see over time is that because the fear by people in charge that these ethnic whites from Europe could sort of align themselves with other oppressed classes in the U.S., especially black folks, um, giving them the status of whiteness means that we don't have to worry as much about them joining with black folks because racial tension has been created um, by giving them whiteness. Um, and so it's a sort of a similar thing when we're talking about superheroes. Um, it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence, but you know, the role of the superhero is to protect justice and establish um, safety in the community. And oftentimes we see this playing out along the same kind of lines that whiteness and whiteness as assimilation plays out. Could you give us, um, our listeners, uh, an example of a superhero that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Oswaldo Oyola does a great job in the first chapter of the book um, of sort of talking about how this question of the superhero and whiteness and can the non-white character become a superhero like Captain America, who has historically been white and who by virtue of their very name, Captain America, represents the United States. Um, can he be a, a black person? Um, and so I think looking at Captain America is a pretty great example. Obviously, throughout the history of superhero comics, there have been other instances um, where creators and even fans have tried to race-bend characters you know, to create a, a black super man in the form of a character named Steel. Um, and this typically doesn't work out well. Sales typically drop for a series. Um, uh, mostly racist readers revolt against the idea and simply say, no, you know, we can have both our white Superman and our non-white super, you know, hero who is not Superman. Um, but for the most part, you know, there is this tendency to think in terms of the superhero figure always being being white. We we have essentially come to associate the most important superheroes over the past 70 plus years with white men. A lot of people will say, well, that just happens to be the case. And we want to say, well, that does happen to be the case, but there is a historical and power-based reason for why. You have a chapter in the book. Um, maybe you can share with the listeners a little bit of the work that this sort of deeper work that you did in that, in that chapter. Yeah. So that chapter uh, is based on Darwin Cook's DC, the new frontier, um, which was a kind of fun retelling of um, the history of the DC universe. If you take, you know, a kind of insiders uh, approach to how did the justice league come about in, you know, 1960, what were the, set of circumstances in a United States where superheroes existed that led to these superheroes sort of becoming a unit that in the end of the, the New Frontiers um, miniseries, 
you know, is an agent of military imperialism. Um, and so what I wanted to do, because I really love that comic, not only because Darwin Cook was an incredible artist, but because the comic did a lot to sort of resuscitate the stories of characters who seem somewhat minor from the perspective of like a DC universe history. Um, so characters like Martian Manhunter and John Henry, AKA Steel, um, who I end up focusing on in this chapter. And the reason I did that is because having, you know, reread that, that um, miniseries shortly before um, we started this project, I realized how odd it was that the story of Martian Manhunter especially seems so central to the story that's developing over the course of the late 1950s in that miniseries and then up into the creation of Justice League. So Martian Manhunter, you know, he's a Martian, he comes from Mars, he's brought to Earth. Um, his normal Martian form is terrifying to humans. You know, this is the 1950s, so there's a lot of science fiction B-movies about invaders from space. Um, and there's great scenes where he sort of goes to the movie theater and sees humans, you know, screaming at, you know, at the sight of these horrifying aliens. And he thinks, well, how do I fit in? You know, how can I be a part of this society that I want so desperately to help? And his way of doing that is to um, sort of transform himself into a very, non, you know, nonchalant, typical white policeman and do police work. Um, on the other hand, there's the story of John Henry, who, um, you know, historically, if you're, if you're a fan of country music or, or African-American folk tales and folk songs, you've probably heard of John Henry. There's many versions of that story. Um, you know, he was uh, a freedman who was working on a railroad. The railroad boss brings in a steam-powered machine to, you know, take over the work of the workers, meaning that the laborers would be out of work. And so what John Henry does in the folktale is work harder than the machine until he beats the machine. But ultimately, because he worked so hard, he ends up dying. Um, so interestingly, in Darwin Cook's history, he tried to sort of imagine, okay, there's this black character named Steele who is sort of invented in the 1990s, and he's a Superman figure. He's as powerful as Superman. But how do we integrate him into the history of the DC universe? How do we figure out what his, you know, addition to the Justice League would have looked like? And what I was interested in in my paper is that um, Cook doesn't try to sugarcoat history. He doesn't try to say, you know, obviously, you know, in the 1950s, um, race was hard, but there were a bunch of good whites who let John Henry join the Justice League and everything was, you know, fine and dandy. That's not what Cook does. He says, no, it was pretty racist. Um, and maybe he is playing into a bit of sort of post-race, today is better. Um, it's not something I necessarily talk about, but at least what he's saying is in the 1950s and 60s, race sucked. And if there was a black guy who was doing vigilante work, he was going to be killed by the KKK. And that's exactly what happens. Um, so I wanted to juxtapose these two stories of an alien's ability to fit into society by sort of becoming the perfect policeman versus this vigilante who strikes out at racial justice but is murdered for it um, at the hands of white supremacy. And to show that what Cook is doing 
is re-envisioning the history of the DC universe, but doing so in a way that pays very close attention to how whiteness assimilates Martian Manhunter and rejects, um, rejects Steel slash John Henry, which is exactly sort of allegorical to the whole question of who can be a superhero. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love that. Um, you're, the title, Unstable Masks, is an allusion to Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks. With this in mind, could we take another character like Cyborg, um, or, I don't know, you, you choose, Wolverine, or, you know, Vision, um, and kind of read them through a Fanonian kind of a psychological sort of Fanonian conceptual space? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could. And to be honest, um, psychoanalysis is not my field, so I wouldn't be comfortable doing it. But I think that the chapters that we have, for example, like you said, there's a there's a chapter on vision that focuses mostly on his sort of desire to attain white masculine domesticity. And that's an interesting chapter because it tracks vision across not just, you know, one single comic, but across multiple iterations and shows how different creators deal with this. And there's a lot going on there in in Esther's chapter around, you know, what does it mean to embody the white man at both sort of a a psychological level, but at the physical level. Um, And there's also a chapter on Wolverine that, that deals with this in specifically in Frank Miller's um, miniseries, about Wolverine um, going to Japan and what what that sort of Orientalism, how that Orientalism plays into the concept of whiteness. Um, and so, you know, in, in labeling the book Unstable Masks, we're really trying to get at this, this I, the same assimilation idea that you're talking about earlier, um, where, you know, whiteness has the privilege to put on the masks that it wants. Um, but at the same time, always seems somewhat uncomfortable with itself, is always looking for more aspects to assimilate, whether it's, you know, the awesome samurai-ness that Wolverine wants to eat up and sort of add to his, you know, superhero abilities, not that a a guy with impenetrable body that heals itself and has blades coming out of his hand, you know, necessarily needs any more skills. Um, and that at the same time, you know, if there, if whiteness is a mask, it's a mask that only certain people can put on at certain times. Mm-hmm. You know, and Vision is an interesting example because he's a robot. Like, ideally, he should be able to embody whatever he wants, but yet he's always failing this sort of psychosocial, um, he's failing to attain this psychosocial level of white masculine success. Mm-hmm. Batman, of course, right? Batman's a great example of this. Exactly, yeah. Um, and and in in um, Jeffrey Brown's chapter on Batman, he had, he with Batman and the the question of coloniality um, and justice, and how Batman sort of creates this this corporation to extend the very idea of man across multiple nations, and and how does he do it? He does it by choosing people who are going to do exactly what he wants them to do in um, the Middle East, in Africa, in Mexico, um, in France. And all of these people um, are people who in many ways challenge 
um, the classic ideals of American whiteness, which you know, Bruce Wayne represents. Um, and yet, because Grant Morrison, who's writing um, Batman at the time, is thinking about you know, this great sort of neoliberal crusade for global justice, he's ignoring the fact that justice looks different for white people and non-white people. So you, you and Martin, as you mentioned at the beginning of our podcast, you know, you had this idea at a coffee shop, you launched into it. Um, I know this was running up to the Trump election. Um, and now here we are kind of, you know, 2020. Um, what, what, if anything, has changed um, in, I don't know, comics and sort of fandoms and comics creating that might... I don't know, maybe trouble or destabilize a little bit this this uh, sort of this position of whiteness. Yeah, it's a great question because it's one that we've wrestled with a lot, not just in comics, but in you know society generally. Um, and I think that the 2010s will probably be remembered in the history of comics as a period that first saw the attempts of fans and creators who are not white guys um, sort of begin to succeed at changing the industry. Um, what it means to change, you know, comics and superhero comics specifically, um, time will still have to tell because, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of important pushes for diversity, but the question is what does diversity mean in a medium that is still you know, directing capital to this very powerful corporation that is still invested in what sells, right? Um, and is it justice and equality to, you know, suddenly have um, a character become important only because, for example, in the case of Ms. Marvel, um, only because she sells a lot of copies. It doesn't necessarily mean that the basics you know, the basic structures of power in society have changed for um, Muslim Americans or Arab Americans or Pakistani Americans, but it means something. And I think the question of what it means for diversity to have succeeded in minor ways in the industry um, is still one that's left unanswered because we haven't really seen the full ramifications of this larger media cycle we're in that is just obsessed with superheroes. Um, so it's not really a great answer because I'm not sure there are many good answers, but I think we've generally seen that fans and critics and, you know, now the increasing cohort of fans slash critics who are becoming scholars, um, we're seeing that they're much better readers of race and gender and ethnicity and ability um, and all these different structures of power than they ever were, than we ever were. Um, and so that's bringing sort of a lot of excitement to the way that we talk about comics and about what's possible. You know, maybe in 20 years that will have significantly changed the industry and who makes up the industry. But, you know, I think we'll have to see. What, um, you know, as we wrap this up, what's a really exciting title for you right now in comics? That is a question I can't actually answer because I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been reading any comics um, that are coming out regularly for about two years. Um, 
largely because a lot of my work has moved away from comics. Um, and so much of what I'm reading in comics are graphic novels that my, my kid needs, um, you know, is reading for school or, or whatnot. Um, so I, a lot of what I've also been doing is reading over old things. So I'm trying to work my way through, um, you know, the Tintin series and um, Valerian and Laureline, both French uh, comic series. Um, but from what I hear, there's a lot of great stuff happening. I just don't have my finger on the pole. Well, that. Mm -hmm. you're really busy too, trying to finish up your PhD. I know you also edit a, um, your editor, um, of a journal, um, among many other things that you do. What, what is the sort of next big project for you beyond sort of finishing this dissertation? Yeah, so finishing the dissertation, which is on um, the effect of the Korean War on American fiction in the 50s. Um, I'm also co-writing with Martin, um, the co-editor for this book, a short introduction to Wattis for MIT Press's Essential Knowledge series. That'll be a book of roughly 35,000 words that's kind of geared toward a popular audience about you know, the, the larger question what we're talking about in this is whiteness. How do we think about it? Um, how do we recognize it and how do we fight it? Um, so a lot of the work that I'm doing, especially with Martin, are toward a more general look at whiteness. Uh, he and I also co-edit, along with Julia Round, um, a book series for University of Nebraska Press on comics theory. Um, so if anyone listening is interested in you know, submitting to that, please reach out to us. Um, and just now, this hasn't really been announced yet, um, but in the past few days, uh, we've gotten a contract, um, another scholar, Karen Omri and I, to co-edit a book series for Paul Grave on major science texts. So a lot going on, um, a lot in the editing world, um, but hopefully some more public-focused work about, you know, how we deal with these major issues. Well, thank you, Sean, for joining me, Professor Latinx podcast to talk about your co-edited Unstable Masks, Whiteness and American Superhero Comics. Thank you, Sean.